0: it's me peaches christ your old ghoul friend and hostess of the midnight mass podcast you're tuning in for another exciting adventure with us because today wow oh my god do we have a a special episode for you um it's got drag it's got guns it's got tits It's really everything you want in a cult movie. Uh, But before we uh, introduce this fantastic masterpiece, forgotten masterpiece in many ways, uh, let's introduce another masterpiece of sorts, my co-host, the fantastic Michael Varane. Hello, 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 Peaches. Hi, someone once told me, and I didn't realize I was doing this, and I did it just a little bit there, But I, for years, at Midnight Mass, when I would have um, a special guest, uh, like, you know, Mink Stall or Tura Satana, I would build up the intro, and then I would go, Tura Satana! And uh, someone later was like, so what's up with the Oprah Winfrey of it all? And I was like, what are you talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I get it. To me, it's that sort of carnival barker of it
0: all, though. I guess I didn't think of Oprah so much. It's as so Oprah, like, though. It is. It she, really she, is. She has seeped into my brain. And I am an unapologetic Oprah stan as the youth would say, I stan Oprah Winfrey. I mean, I know she's left the planet, and uh, and she's, you know, a mega superstar who's kind of maybe out of touch with reality, and we actually got to watch that happen, right, as her, as her star rose, but let's face it, this is a woman who, to me, more than anyone, embodies the American dream, and uh, I just, I love her so fucking much, so it's funny to me when something not horror, not cult, but something that is in my DNA ends up on stage, and then someone calls me out on it and I'm like oh yeah that is totally Oprah that's my Oprah
1: but you're absolutely right as children of the generation that we came from she was appointment tv every day like after school or after work I remember my mom
0: would come home and that was the first thing that was on was Oprah so I get it we could do an idol worship on Oprah uh, which would be very, maybe controversial. I don't know, would it be? I don't know. Miss Sophia home now. Her as Sophia in The Color Purple, which is her film debut. Anyway, this show isn't about Oprah. You're going to get me on an Oprah tangent, but it is about another woman who at the same time was also gracing our television screens, you know, maybe in a different way, but she's also gorgeous and powerful. And we feature her in this episode because she is the star of this week's film. Michael, what are we talking about this week?
1: Well, you can call her whatever you want. Just don't call her babe. That's right. We are talking about the 1996 film Barb Wire starring none other than Pamela Anderson, Jack Noseworthy, Victoria Roll, Udo Kier, and so many more directed by David Hogan. And, you know, this movie, our first comic book movie here on the show, is so much more than just what you may remember it as. It is a spectacle worthy of celebration. And at the center of it all, of course, is a person who is worthy of celebration. And I will say here and now, although this episode is titled Barbwire and we are celebrating barbed wire, it is in many ways also an idol worship episode for the one and only Pamela
0: Anderson. We could just as easily swap the title out to be idol worship, Pam Anderson, except that we didn't intend for it to be that. It became that as we had our conversations. And I think it's lovely when when through our conversations with each other and our guests, we realize like, oh, this is this is the really kind of the singular reason we're revisiting this film is because of this woman and what she did on screen. And also because of her place uh, currently. You know, we talk a lot about what's going on with her today. Um, and, And the character of Barb Wire, which, you know, is the titular character <laughs> you see what I did there? I did. It was, it was it was uh I had to beat you to it, you know. It was very um, good. Yeah, yeah, thank you. She's the titular character. Now let's see if I can run that joke into the ground. Uh she as the titular character, okay, I won't do it anymore. Uh she she really is both playing the character which is the comic book character but she's sort of channeling her own drag persona which is exactly what we do um, at midnight mass at the stage shows so if you come and see one of my stage shows you know it's not jinx doing little edie and peach is doing big edie uh as a straight up you know the way drew barrymore did it in the movie um it is it is a hybrid of jinx Clearly, it's Jinx. Does that make right. sense? It's not Jarek, It's not not the person behind Jinx taking on a new persona. It is the persona becoming the character. And I feel like barbed wire more than a lot of the films that we do. It's like oh, this is Pam Anderson, the creation. And we talk a lot about how, you know, she is a a modern version of Jane Mansfield, Marilyn Monroe, Anna Nicole Smith, you know, that this is her creation taking on this role. And I think that's why it speaks to us so much and why we love it.
1: One of the things I think about when considering the movies of John Waters, especially the one starring Divine, is exactly that. You're watching a layered circumstance. It's not just... Glenn Milstead playing Don Davenport. It's Glenn as divine as Don. It's these layers. Yeah. And I think that Pamela Anderson, at this point when the movie came out, had reached such a cultural fever pitch that she knew who her character was and what the audience expected of her as Pamela Anderson, the character. And she brought it to this role. And I think that choosing a comic book movie as her big, like, you know, film outing to do so makes sense because it's larger than life. And Pamela Anderson, coming off of Baywatch, knew that the world expected larger than life from her. And I think she delivers.
0: That's part of the baffling trajectory of this whole experience in and, and like many, many, many of the cult movies we tackle uh this is a movie that uh was not embraced by by the mainstream audience but unlike a lot of the cult movies that we talk about it also didn't find its cult audience immediately Um, and its cult audience is still being found all these years later in fact we're kind of hoping with this Midnight Mass episode, we have an agenda here, which is to remind people of how magical and wonderful Pam Anderson is and was. And part of that is inspired by the digging up of the sex tape scandal through the Hulu TV show and how that it wasn't necessarily a good thing for her, right? Like, she wasn't part of that process. It wasn't like Monica Lewinsky working with Ryan Murphy. This was something where they did this and Pam Anderson didn't want them to do it. So it kind of feels icky.
1: And I think that that is a very important point. We are not operating under this myopic belief that this movie just was swept aside because people didn't go and see it or whatever. We know that operative misogyny was at work at the time and continues to be something that Pamela Anderson faces. She has been exploited time and again by the media, by the world. And we feel like part of the rediscovery of this movie is also this cultural discussion about the reclamation of Pam Anderson and her own agency that we we want her to have and that she has and deserves. And it's a very powerful thing in digging into this movie that on the surface is a guns and popcorn kind of film.
0: But what does make it special is presented right away. You know, talk about agency. You've got... This woman hanging from, you know, a swinging contraption in the center of, a, of an exotic dance club, you know, being hosed down with water, which we later find out from one of our guests was her creation, something she thought should open the movie. And it is so fucking sexy and so spectacular in that kind of decadent showgirl style of like, wow, this is wild. This is over the top. But but not only is she, you know, being ogled by men, there's a guy who goes a little too far. You know, he's pretty rude, right? Right. He's gross, but he doesn't do anything other than really heckle her, you know, in a a kind of a gross way. And, And the way she deals with it when he calls her babe is to take off her high heel and launch it through the air, use it as a weapon and impale him in the forehead. And to me, that's like, And here's the movie we're about to watch. And in many ways, as we discussed with our guests, it's due to misogyny that people didn't want to see a Pam Anderson like that. You know, they they didn't want to see her in charge and, you know, having the ability to kill a man for being rude to her, you know. Well, right. And look,
1: one of the things that was really important to us is. We, as as queer individuals, understand the majesty and power of Pamela Anderson. Of course, we're going to be talking about it a lot on this show. But one of the things that Peaches and I have both been addressing in this introduction is just how much commentary she has had to deal with from men via the misogynistic lens. And we wanted, in this episode, to show what her impact is for everybody. And luckily, we have two amazing guests mm-hmm. who... As women in the film industry, as women who are filmmakers, how important this movie was to them to see Pamela Anderson, to see her agency and her power, and how that impact has
0: affected them in their own careers. And I am so thrilled with these conversations. Part of the zeitgeist sometimes of the way we do this show is that Michael and I will be workshopping something on our little google doc that we use and um you know we have a ton of movies with guest ideas and let's face it if you if you want to support this podcast on our patreon this thing could last for years and years and years because the list we have is pretty long and we keep adding to it but the fact is that you and i discuss barbed wire briefly and then find out that our first guest had just written about it in in a very specific way and was motivated to write about it in in much the same way that we were motivated to do this episode.
1: This next guest is someone whose cultural critique and insight I have long admired and adored. Uh, You can hear her weekly As the co host of This Ends at Prom, a podcast that examines teen girl movies by today's lens. And she is someone who, when I saw that she wrote about barbed wire, I said to Peaches, we have to talk to her. And boy, am I glad we did. We're talking to BJ Colangelo right now. Welcome back, listeners. I am so excited about our next guest. I met her many moons ago when she was running Day of the Woman, one of the Internet's foundational genre blogs that examined horror from a feminist point of view. In the years since, her byline has appeared across a number of publications, including Fangoria, Vulture, Shudder, Playboy.com, and Blumhouse.com. She's also the filmmaker behind such works as Powerbomb, Labrys, and a Deadly Deer segment of the holiday horror anthology film, Deathcember. In addition to all of that, she co-hosts the popular podcast, this ends at prom with her wife Harmony, where they analyze movies marketed to teen girl audiences from a cis and transgender lens. And relevant to today's episode, she recently wrote an article for Slashfilm titled Pam Anderson's Barbed Wire is Awesome, You All Just Hate Fun. Please welcome filmmaker, writer, host, and much, much more,
0: B.J. Colangelo. B.J., welcome.
2: Hello. Oh, my God. I need to hire you to write my bio for things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I always say those who get the intro from Michael really win the lottery on this podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, B.J., you know, we've known each other for a long time. I'm so excited to have you here. And I I love that we get to talk about this movie because although this movie particularly was not Necessarily made for a teen girl audience. In some ways, some of the things that you do and discuss on *Descends at Prom* apply to how this film was received by audiences as well. And I'm I'm wondering, before we dig into all of that, when did you first discover *Barbed Wire*?
2: I discovered *Barbed Wire* the way I discovered most of the seminal films in my life—way too young, and I was probably—I don't know, maybe ten. 10 is like probably pushing it um, because I was fascinated with women who looked like Pam Anderson as a child, specifically because I was also fascinated with women wrestlers and I grew up in the midwest so there were a lot of you know beer girl ads in the garages of all of my friends dads places um so I became very fixated on it and I was very fortunate to have parents that let me watch whatever I wanted <laughs> so it was not out of the ordinary that I wanted to rent a film like barb wire And I remember seeing it very, very young. And I was fascinated, one, with how glamorous she was while also being a total ass kicker. But more importantly, that it had this weird cyber goth sort of look to it that was really intriguing to me as a kid because I loved this like neo-futurism we were starting to get into before Y2K hit. And I had so much fun with it and it was sexy and it felt dangerous to watch. I knew I was probably not supposed to be watching this movie, and that only made it better.
0: Anything that we discover at a young age that that feels taboo, especially if we're seeking out otherness, that's the most exciting, titillating thing to experience. Like when you're looking over your shoulder to see if someone's coming, you know. To you know, in terms of do I switch the channel? You know, those are the best best things to discover. And now I'm uh, a little bit older. I was telling Michael, I went to see it drunk uh, with, with a drag queen friend of mine, um, uh, Martini, my sidekick, as some of you may know. And we just, especially Martini, just loved it immediately. And what's really interesting since is that, well, I've considered it. It's been on my list of Midnight Mass possibilities for the live events for years. And and somehow it never made it to a live event. Um, And I haven't really revisited it until now because of this podcast, because of this show. And I'm so glad that you wrote your article and that Michael brought it to my attention. And I love the title of your article and I love revisiting the film. And I have so many questions for you both, Um, (laughs) questions I didn't have when I saw it the first time, especially because now we're five years beyond 2017. So for Mm -hmm. those of you who, who don't totally know, this is a future film, a futuristic post apocalyptic, you know, crazy film that takes place in the second Civil War of America. And the year is 2017, which I think is even, you know, it makes it even more interesting seeing it in 2022, right? First and foremost, I love Pam Anderson. I loved watching her in this movie. I almost felt like her performance was a little restrained. Like there was part of me that was like, oh, I just wanted to, to go bigger because I think the image is so big. The makeup, the hair, the look, the performance is almost surprisingly restrained. You almost look at her and think it's going to be, you know, Varla from Faster Pussycat Kill Kill or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, Elizabeth Berkley in, in Showgirls, you know, but it's not that performance. She's shit kicking and kind of quiet, kind of understated in some ways. But I just wanted to say first and foremost that I love Pam Anderson. I'm like, what came first? The drag queen look or the Pam Anderson look? Is she the one who modeled the look for drag queens for the next 20 years? You know, the makeup, the hair. I see what you're saying about the, um, the beer poster girls, but there's something so specifically fabulous about Pam and her makeup. that It's like it's at an e- elevated level and the contouring and the hair and all of that. So I'm like, wait, did she borrow from the drag queens or did the drag queens steal from her? Do you
1: have thoughts, BJ?
2: So the thoughts that I have is that if we look at the early, early incarnation of Pam Anderson, when she was a beer sign girl, a kind of a girl next door look, she's got kind of mousy brown hair, almost like a dirty blonde almost. And she's beautiful, but she is not yet this like knockout, very precise Pam Anderson look that we associate with her. And I will say, if TikTok has taught me anything, the Pam Anderson bangs are coming back, and I'm thrilled because Gen <laughs> Z has adopted those bangs and they are making it work. Bless all of those children, <laughs> the kids are all right. But I'm not entirely sure like who's borrowing from who because once she started doing Playboy, that Mm -hmm. look started to get more defined. And she's been on Playboy more than anyone in history. Mm. And that look is just, you see that and you're like, that is Pam Anderson. Mm -hmm. And when you see someone else doing it, your brain associates it with Pam Anderson. Whereas there are some looks that I see and I'm like, oh, that's a drag look. Like even if it's on a random celebrity, I'm like, that's a drag look. But something about that makeup I associate so much more with just her. And I can't tell if it's just because she made it so identifiable and so iconic that it became a trademark. And that's why our brains go to it. She could have taken it from drag for all I know. Um, but I think in terms of culture, we associate it more heavily with her.
0: For a million years, I've screamed it from the rooftop that Elvira is this AFAB drag queen. Oh, and yeah. she was my mentor or whatever. And I was watching this movie today going like, holy shit. Pam Anderson and Elvira should have done a movie together. Oh my God, Pam Anderson is a drag queen and she's hot and she's amazing. And I feel like I owe Pam an apology. I should have been talking about Pam Anderson for 20 years too, you know. Her, her influence has just been like huge. And rewatching the movie was a total pleasure. So anyways, I think it was Pam Anderson and the drag queens have all tried to emulate her. <laughs>
1: we do culturally owe Pam Anderson an apology. Oh because my god, yes. One yeah. of the things that I really wanted to explore in doing this episode is sort of the reclamation of Pamela Anderson as cult icon and as as cult figure that she deserves to be that those of us who like her know. But one of the things that I found very striking about your article was just the exploration of how because of everything that was happening at the time with her, the sex tape, all of that how that misogyny leaked over to barbed wire. And you you believe that that directly impacted the audience reaction and critical reaction to the film. That's correct?
2: I, yes, I absolutely do. I think if you look at some of the reviews from when Barb wire first came out, first off, the stuff that we were able to get away with, and by we, I just mean culturally, as a species we're allowed to say about women in the media is abhorrent just i mean we are in the the mid 90s this is the point in time where we are taking people like little baby Britney Spears and slowly morphing them and taking over their lives. We are taking the Olsen twins and slowly morphing them and taking over their lives. Misogyny was currency at this time period. And then of course, you know, was a multi-billion dollar industry in the 2000s. But if you read these reviews, the frequency in which reviewers, both male and female, just drag her for the way she looks, they they talk. Uh, I think at one one of them talks about her looking like cheesecake that was made in a lab. People talk about her body and about how it's distracting, or they think that she's a terrible actress, or what have you. And it's really so coded. You can tell if you read through the subtext. These are all people who watch that tape without her consent and are unable to separate that image from their minds. And I think that that's also a part of why this film has also not really been reclaimed the way a lot of the other superhero movies, because don't forget this is a comic book movie. That's Mm -hmm. part of why it's so goofy is because it's a comic book movie. But the movies that came out around this time, Batman and Robin and Tank Girl, these are all movies that have been reclaimed. They were crapped on when they first came out But in the years since, people are like, actually, no, we were a little harsh. There's a lot of fun going on here. That's not happened for barbed wire. And I think it's because of the misogyny and the whorephobia and all of that has not gone away. These are things that we've not had a reckoning with in general. So barbed wire doesn't get to be seen as like a feminist masterpiece the way that Taint Girl does. And that's really sad.
1: I think barbed wire is actually our first comic book film to make it to to Midnight Mass in terms of a cult movie. But if you look at another movie, and I I, I consider a similar vein, Barbarella, which is also Mm -hmm. based on a comic book. Why do you suppose we extol Barbarella for its sexual qualities while punishing barbed wire for its sexual qualities?
2: I think it's because it's Pam Anderson. I genuinely think that it's because it's Pam Anderson. I think if there was any other actor in this role that was not somebody who had posed for Playboy, was not somebody who was known for Baywatch in the the leering ways that she was shot, If it was not somebody who had a sex tape taken without their consent and sort of become the first viral revenge porn sort of issue that we're dealing with, I think people would have a lot different feelings about it. But there's something about people being unable to separate Pam Anderson, the human being, versus the character of Barb Wire that they view this as an extension of her. And to some extent, it is an extension of her. This is a role that meant a lot to her. She got the barbed wire tattoo. She was dedicated. She loved this role, but people did not love her back for it. And I I think this movie's punishment is an extension of the punishment people want to give her because how dare you be in this sex tape?
0: It's really interesting thinking this through because my experience was so different and, part of that is because we never stopped loving Pam Anderson. And I think it's like that thing where it's like, oh, right. Like that's another reason we are in the underground or we, we exist in this weird kind of void. Like quite frankly, one of the reasons we may never have screened barbed wire is just from a legal point of view. You know, I would send, I would send a list of Uh, Print titles to the bookers in LA, and they would tell me what was available, what they cost, you know, what they had 35 millimeter prints for, what they didn't. Um, so I'm thinking back and I'm like, I mean, the whole reason we were interested in it as a drag culture was Pam Anderson and the sex tape and that the sort of misogynistic view of her. If anything, I think it probably made us like her more because she had agency over her image. She was providing um, a fantasy uh, you know, and using hair and makeup and uh, a comic book movie. I mean, the poster for Barbwire. wire, every drag queen, you, you, BJ has a pillow of it. She just got a pillow that she showed <laughs> us. BJ will be planting her face on those beautiful, beautiful breasts. Absolutely. I yes. <laughs> so it's really interesting BJ because I think you're completely right. And now I'm really like mad at myself because I'll tell you Miss chocolate, who is famously in San Francisco, Miss chocolate is the door whore of the, of the nightclub that I got my start at, at the stud T shack for many, many, many years. I performed there. Miss chocolate is a dead ringer for Pam Anderson. I mean, people couldn't believe. So, you know, all you Patreon listeners, I will post pictures of Miss chocolate. And actually when we, when we decided to do this episode, I was telling Mike, about Miss Chocolate, we all admired her ability to look like Pam Anderson. It's really unfortunate and gross that we kind of live in this, this world where even as, as recent as the mid-90s, and we also see it with Showgirls as well, the way Elizabeth Berkeley was treated, the way she oh, was yeah. thrown, we've talked about that on the podcast, the, she was thrown under the bus for a movie where the sole responsibility of this, this movie, as far as the way it came out, was Joe Esterhaus and Paul Verhoeven. They didn't Mm -hmm. suffer. They didn't get thrown under the bus. The young woman did, you know, the the star of the movie. And I think it's just another uh, gross example of how, you know, unfair things are. Because if it were a man in the same kind of action movie with the same level of camp and, you know, over the top sensibility and scene chewing, I, I, when your article points that out and lists the movies that men did around the same time, none of them suffered the way you know she did or were punished for it.
2: Not at all. And even the people that are in this movie didn't get punished the way that she was. Clint Howard's in this movie. He's obviously like a cult icon. He's in a ton of B movies and he had a wonderful career. Uh, Tamara Morrison is the male second in this to her. And he's in Star Wars movies and just got to be the star in the book of, Bo- he's Boba Fett. And it's like they got to go on and do these incredible things. And Pam Anderson became a punchline and became fodder mm. for the tabloids. And obviously, that is due more so to her personal life. And that's an entire different conversation. But it's a real shame because she really wanted this to be something. She was tired of people. Seeing her as nothing more than a body and wanted to prove like, hey, yeah, I have this body. I'm proud of it. I love it. I love my sexuality. But also, I'm an actor and I'm a performer and people just couldn't wrap their heads around it. And that's very sad. She deserved better.
1: Yeah, she absolutely did. Going from the serious to the fun aspects, the reasons we like the film, uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the sort of strange parallel the plot of this movie takes to the movie Casablanca because (laughs) it's in many ways beat for beat Casablanca in a post-apocalypse.
2: That was intentional. The comic book is supposed to be that uh, which I think is so great and I don't know why there are not a bunch of revival theaters doing double features of Casablanca and barbed wire because that to me is a perfect double feature. You get the people that are gonna come in for the classic. And then when it's a little too late at night, you bust out barbed wire. Like that's perfect.
0: There is another reason uh, to have argued that this film should have become a cult movie because Udo Kier is one of the stars of the film. And he is so good in it. You know, I feel like he and Pam are in the same movie. They're in the same universe. They actually have incredible chemistry. I love the the scenes of the two of them. I love when he uh, is introducing her assistant and, you know, it's the attack dog. And, you know, like the camp in the film is quite good. You know, this was an era where I actually think things like Batman and Robin that have been reclaimed. I'm like, I don't know, Joel Schumacher was it good camp? I don't know. You know, I, 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 but, but this, so much of it, it's, it's so consistent, the tone in terms of being both serious and ludicrous. But some of my favorite moments are just so insane. The dog, also the the bubble bath, the bubble bath mm-hmm. scene oh, is so incredible. amazing. Right? I mean, <laughs> there's some really inspired moments. What are some of your favorite moments in the movie?
2: Something that is ingrained in my head and will be until the day I die is when the man comes out in the full game suit and she is going to punish him. And the sound effect that is used is like something out of Tom and Jerry. (laughs) It's remarkable because you look at Pam Anderson and she is otherworldly hot like mm-hmm. regardless of what your orientation is you see pam anderson in this outfit and you're like oh like yeah. gotta take a breather there and then for it to follow up with i'm gonna hit this man in a gimsuit and it's gonna make a boy sound like it's tom and jerry <laughs> brilliant like absolute <laughs> brilliant <laughs>
1: Never mind that she always looks amazing. Can we just talk about the
0: Tu Wang Fu of it? The Tu Wang Fu of it. You never see her without the face on. You know, there's that there's that, you know, in Tu Fu if you're a drag performer and you watch that movie you go this is so terrible because no drag queen lives in drag like that's impossible so you know you, you never see Patrick Swayze or um, any of them you know um, John Leguizamo out of drag right and that's the difference between Tu Wong Fu and Priscilla right like big difference mm-hmm. and Pam Anderson and Barb Wire is just I mean it's amazing it, it looks like she just she must have had to have spent you know half her day doing her makeup because not only is she flawless but she is in epic battles where her face you know she doesn't even need to powder you know afterwards I love the fantasy of all that
2: it opens with her getting sprayed with a hose head to toe and yet (laughs) when you see her in the back room the mascara has not moved she still has highlight (laughs) like the gloss is not. she doesn't even have hair stuck in her gloss yeah Otherworldly. Incredible. And I share
1: with both of you, uh, and I don't know if you'll appreciate that I'm I'm telling you this, but I I rewatched the movie with Brendan before uh, we came on here. And in the opening, when she's getting like sprayed with the hose, Brendan was like, what is this Dragula floor show that she's doing? (laughs) Oh, my God,
0: that's amazing. And he's kind
1: of right.
2: Yes. (laughs) That
0: That is not where I thought you were going with this comment, because when you said, you know, basically me and my boyfriend were watching this, can I share something with you? I don't know if you'll appreciate it. I thought you were gonna tell us something else. I just, I just thought maybe you know you. You always assume the worst. That's not the worst. I'd love That's the idea that Pam Anderson caused two gay boys to have sex or whatever. You know, like <laughs> I, and and, and I, I think BJ's right. I was aroused. I mean, it's like, she's otherworldly. If you're not attracted to Pam Anderson, you can't admire the spectacle. And I do compare this performance to some of those iconic, legendary, sexy, strong women. And I would say that Nomi Malone and Varla from Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, even some of Divine or Frankenfurter embody that sort of like bizarre sexuality that's just larger mm-hmm. than life. And so much of it is just confidence. Like, I'm confident enough to look this insane. And she works it. Her costumes are genius. Her tits are flawless. She's not afraid to, you know, show her body. And I think she delivers like, a good performance. Like I said, you expect it to be at a level 10 to match her look. She's actually quite sort of subtle. Like her choices are really interesting.
2: I agree completely. And the fact that she looks this good and she's giving what honestly is a grounded performance in uh, essentially a a living cartoon. And she's gunning down fascists and riding (laughs) motorcycles that shoot flames. I fully don't understand what else people wanted from this because- as far as I'm concerned, this is checking every box that I have.
1: It's really remarkable because this movie, as you mentioned in your article, did not have that big of a budget, especially no. in comparison to other superhero movies of the time. And yet it looks expensive. Whereas I feel like, and correct me if you, if you disagree, but it's almost like, it had too much money. And that's where it it fell in the in-between for cult fans. Because you know that if this was made for like $2 million less by like Jim Wynorski and starred like, I don't know, Tracy Lords, there would be like a different cult audience for it. But it's Mm. sort of that thing where because it got mainstreamed a bit, the film and her got punished for it.
2: I would agree. And what is so interesting is I think this movie ended up with like a $9 million budget, I believe. And finding out that it was the cheapest budget of all the superhero movies was bananas to me because they gave Steel with Shaquille O'Neal almost double the budget. And that like, how? what? I'm so sorry. What?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It also just speaks to the misogyny of it all because I bet if you look at the above the line, fees. Um, and you look at what Shaquille was paid versus what Pam Anderson was paid to star in a vehicle like this. I'm sure it was rat. Maybe that was the entire budget difference. You know, I bet he got paid a ton of money and I bet she got paid a lot less. And we all know that that's just, that's the way it is. And it's just gross. As I was watching and I was thinking, you know, I went and saw this in San Francisco, which is a very specific thing, especially in the mid nineties, you know, No, it wasn't San Francisco. I went and saw this with Martini before we got to San Francisco. This is another movie like um, Body of Evidence, Michael, where Martini and I went and we were watching a different movie than everyone else in the audience was watching. You know, like our our lens was a little (laughs) different. Right. Um, And so, you know, I I guess I just am thinking now about it and I'm like, who do you think this movie was made for? Who was the target demographic? Because I think... DJ's bringing up an interesting point that really ultimately it it is a movie that, you know, girls can embrace, right? But but not necessarily probably who it was made for.
2: Oh no, this was not made for girls, even though the people who tend to love this movie and champion it are either women or queer people. Like those are Mm -hmm. the people who are keeping this movie alive. But this was absolutely the same sort of situation that we would see later years with Jennifer's body. This is a movie that they tried to capitalize off of somebody who was like mind-blowingly hot and marketed to marketed the film towards men. But ultimately the story is going to resonate so much deeper with women, but nobody thought that there was money in prioritizing the female dollar. Uh, so then it got marketed as just look at how hot Pam Anderson is. And Don't get me wrong. She absolutely is. But they could have done something with this. They could have been like, she's hot and she kicks ass and fights fascists. And I think that would have made a lot of people really excited. But then again, at the same time, mid 90s uh, into the 2000s, we're in girl hate period. We are in anti fem period where it was mm. very, very cool and ideal to to try to be hashtag not like other girls. So this movie was kind of doomed no matter what. Well, Mm. let's talk
1: about the weaponization of that idea because this is a female superhero movie that based on market research and demographics of the studio, blah, 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 wasn't in their mind made for women, but because it didn't perform well, then they didn't want to green light comic book movies about women because no one wanted to see comic book movies about women, blah, 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 blah. And they used that argument for years, like this Catwoman, Electra. Next thing you know, it's like, for a decade, we can't do a female-led superhero movie because people won't go to see it. It's like, no, you guys fucking don't know how to market it. That's the issue.
2: Correct. You don't know how to market it, and you don't know what to prioritize in your storytelling. Something that is the perfect example of this that I bring up all the time with people is the first Twilight movie is directed by Catherine Hardwick, female director. They did not think that movie was going to make money. They truly did not. And then it made fuck you money and they went well <laughs> she can't work on this anymore and every subsequent twilight film is directed by a white man and that to me is the most proof positive that we have of the things that started with barbed wire are things that we're still combating today and even today we had the the ms marvel trailer drop and everything is uh they're woke uh that's another girl uh i don't care And it's so maddening that we just haven't grown up as a culture. Obviously, there are plenty of people putting in the work, fighting the good fight. But as a general statement, people are not there yet. And it's infuriating.
0: And it's despite things like Twilight or, you know, Wonder Woman, where it's like, Mm -hmm. uh, hello, let's look at the facts. You know, it's infuriating. Yeah. Despite Black Panther, despite Wonder Woman, Get Out or whatever, we're still far far, far from where we need to be. It's still an uphill battle. And even though it's so interesting what you say about Twilight and the subsequent subsequent sequels, because it does feel like that. It's like, oh, gay shit works. Let's do more gay shit, but let's not give it to the people we should give it to. We'll give it Mm -hmm. to these people over here. It is very strange the the way it all happens. I did actually go and dig around some to kind of look at like who made barbed wire. And I did find that it looks like it was co-written and one of the writers was a woman. I was actually kind of glad to see. I mean, I can't say for sure, but let me just say my lesbian dar, my gay dar for women. Picture, <laughs> right, pictures of women. <laughs> like that's all I saw was a picture of her. Uh, that's horrible, right? Yes. Well, this, and she wrote for the L word. Okay, so I'm just saying, I'm just saying. But anyway, I was like, <laughs> I was thinking like, okay, that makes me feel good. I'm glad that you know she was part of this, you know, like one of us was at the table and even if she's not lesbian, I don't care. She's a woman, you know,
2: I Googled it for you. She is. Don't worry.
0: Okay. Thank you.
2: <laughs> see, see everyone.
0: I have Lesdar. And I am proud of it. It would be so interesting to talk to her about this experience. You know, like what did she have to fight for? You know, what's not in the movie that these men wanted to put in the movie, the script? You know, it's an interesting thing, right? For example, Showgirls, a lot of us love Showgirls who love cult movies, but none of us like the rape scene. You know, there's this 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 moment where you go, oh, right, horrible men made this. And this is how we right. know. And no matter what you say, we knew we were making a campy movie. We, we, we knew we were doing this. It's like, no, 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 because this is brutal and awful and violent. And so with a movie like Barbed Wire, especially knowing that one of the the creators was a woman who was co-writing the script, a lesbian woman, I would love to hear her take on it. And I love knowing that she was part of what brought that to theaters, you know?
2: Absolutely. Because something that gets brought up not enough, in my opinion, is this idea of where does the male gaze end and the lesbian gaze begin? Because mm-hmm. I am a lesbian. I am a also a high femme lesbian. So something like, this movie really speaks to me. And I'm also used to a lot of the lesbian content that is put out not speaking to me. Right. Because it doesn't usually address the high femme sort of aspect of lesbian culture because straight people short circuit when they like, but I don't understand, you look like a straight lady. And it's like, (laughs) you can't look a certain way, my dude, but thanks for trying. Um, So it is really exciting to know that, you know, this is coming from the perspective with a lesbian writer because some of those scenes people will talk about like, oh, it's so porny and it's so whatever. And I'm like, I'm fine with this. This is great for me. I don't know what you're talking about.
0: I had the same exact reaction because I did not expect to find it. Right. So I'm doing the digging and I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. I think she's family. I think she's one of us. And she is, right? So BJ, I think Michael and I are probably fascinated by the subject. I think we should have you back on at some point. I would love to do a show on femme, lesbian gays or some sort of show. Like I can think of obvious examples of like, you know, Jennifer Tilley and Bound. And you know, like there, there's some that are just hitting me over the head. But I love this idea and I love the argument, especially uh, amongst feminists in the mid 90s, because I was a women's studies minor at the time. I was going to college. You know, feminist dialogue was we, we, we talked about it in one of our recent episodes on Truth or Dare. You know, there were the pro Madonna feminists. There were the anti Madonna feminists and, yes, and yes. feminists and there were pro porn feminists and there were anti porn feminists. And there was this real split among feminists um, and, and people who, who really were discussing a lot of these issues. And the split was real. The arguments were intense. But I really love knowing that there was a lesbian behind the scenes um, bringing this to the screen and that you as a young girl we're like kind of getting off on Pam Anderson. And like, you're just going to take that and own it. It's not just for boys. This movie does mm, not right. just have to be for little boys. I love that. Absolutely. That's so great.
1: One of many things that BJ and I share in common is, is a love of, of queer vampires, which, of course, all vampires are queer. But
2: <laughs> yeah, who did it, not, yeah, as I uh, show my my Dracula's daughter tattoo.
1: So good. It goes back to what you were saying about lesbian content that's clearly made for men. I love all those Jean Roland vampire movies of the 70s, oh, yeah. but they don't that's... feel like they're made by a queer person.
2: No, not at all. I talk. Extensively about like a film like Daughters of Darkness, where you have these women that are clearly like they are confirming predatory lesbian trope because they are vampires and they are coming to get you, but they don't have to go to work and they just get to live in luxury and have beautiful gowns and drink wine and have beautiful people fawning over them. Where is the downside? Please (laughs) tell me.
1: Before we go, one thing I did want to talk about is how kind of prophetic this movie is. It, it was oh God, yes. made in 1996, but <laughs> set in 2017. Me. But then it's like this whole thing where America has had a second civil war and slipped into sort of this fascist state. And the one thing that we as three queer people have not even addressed yet is that 90% of the plot is to get this woman who has like hyper-AIDS cure or something, yes. right? Yes.
0: Yes. She has hyper-AIDS and they call it like, Don't they call it Red Ribbon or something? It's not Red Ribbon, but it has some sort of weird name where you're like, ooh, they really went there.
1: Yeah. What's just your take on how watching the movie now in a post-Trump society...
0: We're not in a post-Trump society. Well, that's true. That's true. (laughs) I mean, there's plenty of Trump society around.
2: It's kind of unbelievable how well this movie predicted the state of things. So the the woman who has this, like, hyper-AIDS is a woman of color. First off, Mm -hmm. even in the, the 2022, we are still identifying who the most vulnerable people are in our society. There's even an entire thing about like eye color and like that's how they know if like you're bad or not basing things off of eye color which you know reminds me so much of the the social experiment like how do you teach white people racism is you separate them by eye color uh the amazing professor elliot she's incredible so like you've got that going on you have this weird like return to the y2k cyber goth fashion that we're seeing a lot of on shows like euphoria so that's coming back with this but also this idea that like people will absolutely bow to the whims of fascists if it means that they can maintain power as white people in society and like this movie is calling it. It predicted it. And it's difficult to say like, oh, I can't believe it. When at the same time, you're like, no, the writing has been on the wall since Reagan was in office. Like we should have seen this coming. Um, I don't know why this is a surprise, but they called it for what it is. And I think that it has only made the movie better for me because then it also makes the movie feel smarter in a very weird way. It's just such an incredible movie. They also, they were like, you know what's going to happen one day? People are going to wear BDSM wear as normal clothes and called it. They did. <laughs> you yeah, got it right. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's true. That's true. They called the popularity, the, the rising popularity of drag. Let's face yeah. it, you know, uh, you know, the fact that Pam Anderson walks around looking like that back then seems insane. And now, you can go places, and and plenty of uh, cis women look like drag queens. Oh, walking around absolutely! Today, you know, women did not look like that in the mid nineties. No. You know, so it is very prophetic in many ways. And um, something I thought was worth mentioning, and I, as Michael knows, am not. Uh, very much of a comic person. I had the pleasure of working on a um, a graphic novel with a bunch of um, queer comics, 33 queer comics. It's called Theater of Terror. And because of that experience, I really got to understand more of the world of comics. And I'll say this, a lot of the most transgressive ideas, and I think some of the reasons this movie got made the way it was made was because it started as a comic. Mm -hmm. And that comic writers often kind of push these more political, dark ideas or statements about what's happening in the world. And maybe we dismiss it a little bit because it's a comic. But quite frankly, a lot of them are dealing with some heavy shit and addressing some big issues. And I think in in many ways, that's another part of the charm of the movie is it does feel like a dark post-apocalyptic comic. It really feels true to that. We didn't really tackle sort of the, the the representations of race, I think in many ways there's sort of a progressive quality to this movie, but then in, in, in more ways you realize like, oh right, it's not very, pro-. like mm-hmm. the casting is kind of problematic, there's that whole sequence where, you know, she blows up the big black guy, uh, with that whole character and the, him, him eating the chicken and the, like just like it's so bizarre now to see what was okay in the mid-90s as far as just doing something kind of racist. You know, like, quite frankly, I don't want listeners to think that we're giving the movie a total pass as far as some of this stuff goes. It's prophetic. It was ahead of its time, but it's still got some mid-90s problems. Absolutely.
2: And I think whenever you're doing any sort of analysis of a film from another time period, uh, everyone has to remind to do the thing that the wonderful Laverne Cox tells everyone to do in the wonderful documentary Disclosure, you have to learn to love things critically. You can love this movie and know this has aged poorly, but it's also important to remember, hey, this was totally acceptable socially, like doesn't make it right, does not make it condonable but these were the things that were socially acceptable. That's why it's very hard to watch a movie from the eighties set in high school. And someone is not dropping the F slur like every 30 seconds Yeah, because that's yeah. just the way people communicated. Yeah. And all films to some extent we talk about this a lot on this ends at prom especially when it comes to teen films but films in general a lot of times they are time capsules of your time period and it is where you're going to get the most accurate look of how people were acting and how they were speaking because you can't go back and delete it you can't erase it you can't reinterpret it it's there and it's in front of you and this is definitely one of those examples for sure
1: yeah. So last question, BJ, and I'm sure some of my listeners are like, oh, here it comes. Because I ask almost all of our guests this these days. Cult films, as you know, are, are movies that we carry with us. You know, it's not just you see it once and then you forget about it. It's not like, oh, yeah, I saw this King's Speech or whatever. You're still talking about barbed wire all these years later. But from that time that you saw it, looking over your shoulder, should I even be watching this now? And you spoke to this a little bit just merely by writing the article. You've been with this movie on a journey through your life. And how has your relationship to Barbed Wire changed, if at all?
2: I'm a bit more militant in my love and defense of this movie. Um, I think we are finally at a place culturally where we are starting to recontextualize the way that culture impacted uh, just marginalized people in general throughout time and history, and in particular, Really starting to see it with the late 90s and to the early 2000s off of the heels of the Free Britney movement. Because not only did we get Hulu's Pam and Tommy, which I have a lot of ethical. Quandaries about, but because of that, now Pam Anderson is going to produce a documentary to actually tell her side of things from her voice. And I think that's incredible. I know Netflix is also currently working on a documentary about Anna Nicole Smith, another maligned, beautiful blonde bombshell who unfortunately is no longer with us, who was kind of terrorized by society. And I think that it's really important that we're having these conversations. And for the longest time, I kind of was known for for horror because that's what i love because horror was such a malign genre but horror movies um outside of you know the like the academy and oscar things obviously they're always going to have a problem with horror But similarly to things like Marvel movies or Star Wars movies, like you're not a dork for liking horror anymore. I don't need to get on a a podium and stomp my feet and say, but you need to learn to love horror because it's a respectable genre. People know. They know now. But there are a lot of films that people are not doing that for. And barbed wire is one of them. So if I have to like take up arms and remind people, hey barwire super fun and if you don't like it maybe interrogate why you don't like it what was impacting you if you don't like it because you think it's a cheese ball movie that's fine if you don't like it because you look at that and you think pam anderson equals misogynist slur here that's something that you need to unpack. And I think these are the conversations worth having.
0: I think that is the perfect way to sum things up. And uh you you did mention how you uh, tackle these things on your podcast, but can you just tell folks again where they can find you, where they can listen to the podcast, how they can follow you?
2: Absolutely. So the podcast is This Ends at Prom. We analyze teen girl movies from my perspective as a teen girl movie apologist and my wife, Harmony, who transitioned in 2009. So she missed all of these movies growing up because she was socialized as a teen boy so uh, a lot of fun there and a lot of different varied perspectives you can listen to our show anywhere that you get your podcasts um, we also have twitter instagram patreon at this ends prom and if you just want to hang out with me i'm on twitter instagram and tiktok at bj colangelo
0: thank you bj yeah thanks for coming on that was wonderful
2: thank you oh.
0: All right. That was our talk with BJ Colangelo. And what a fantastic guest. I love the fact that we're talking to her and the audience can't see it, but we got to see that beautiful pillow that she had just received in the mail. And let's talk about the barbed wire poster for a second. OK, um, I know we did it with the talk, but like I remember seeing the poster for that movie before seeing anything else. And uh, Michael, I don't even know if I told you this, uh, but Martini was obsessed with Pam Anderson. You know, it was Martini. And, and for those of you who don't know and, and haven't seen my short films or didn't attend Midnight Mass the original years, Martini was my sidekick. I guess in a way she still is. She didn't really retire, although she barely shows up to do anything anymore. <laughs> I guess in a way she has retired. She just hasn't like given me official notice. Uh, but for many, many years, It was Peaches and Martini. We were very much a duo. And she was famous for being the most flawed and tragic drag queen in all of San Francisco. And when I say that is not an easy moniker to hang on to in this town, that's right, it's Booger Central over here. There was no question. Martini was the biggest booger of them all. She's small and she's a little dirtbag. She, you know, she barely put any effort into her drag. She wore the same shoes for years and years. Her wigs had roaches in them. Um, Her makeup was shit. And yet she was obsessed with Pan Anderson, you know, which was such a hilarious dichotomy. And so when that poster came out, she and I were at the cinema and I remember her just staring at it, like staring at it and me going like, oh yeah, that's pretty spectacular. It so is. the one sheet alone is a work of art for this film, you know, that deserves to be, you know, put in the the, the cult movie hall of fame of movie one sheets.
1: Well, it's one of those movies that despite its uh, box office failure, Everybody knows that poster, whether you've seen this movie or not, because that image of her on the ground with the gun looking super sexy, it's just gold. I mean, it is midnight movie treasure when you see it, you know, and also it's one of those posters that even though it's just the star of the movie, in many ways, it tells you exactly what the movie is. And that's a gift. Yeah, I loved our talk with BJ. I love how thoughtful she has been about the movie and its its long and strange trajectory, but also how much she really truly worships Pamela Anderson and her consideration of how society has treated Pamela Anderson, which of course is at the core of all
0: of our conversations in this episode. Yeah, and I love its feminist take that I think really lends itself to cult movie study. If we're going to kind of dissect a lot of these movies, you know, and I know I brought up Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and Tura Satana, and I know I bring up Nomi Malone and Showgirls a lot, but I think there is a through line, you know, Faye Dunaway and Mommy Dearest. Like, there is this sort of thing where if a woman on screen dares to be too strong or too big or too over the top, that we dismiss it as bad or trashy or you know whatever but really what it is is you can't handle it you know the audience can't handle that because it it, it falls outside of the way you want to view women they've crossed a line here this is too much and that's fucking sexist.
1: It's sexist. And what's worse is that we culturally and as an industry punish them for it. I mean, we as in the world, you and I have a whole show celebrating them for it. But it's it's a true shame. And I know I've talked about this in previous episodes, but it's that thing that Mary Warnov has talked about in the roles that she's taken on, that yeah. she was relegated to B-movies because she played camp. And she said, she's like, you know, if you look at performances of mine in movies that I've done, they wouldn't let me move past a certain point in my career. But if you watch Scarface and Al Pacino does the same thing, he's celebrated
0: for it. And she's absolutely right. And then I think there's another layer. Let's face it. So Mary Warnoff, luckily for her, because she is let's face it sort of masculine, you know, she's, she's strong. She didn't get the sort of the added layer of people being sexist using sexism as the weapon. Does that make sense? So it's like, you've got people out there going, this is wrong. This is trash and they are sluts and they are bad for women they are sexist, right? So it's this thing that call-out culture does right now, where it's kind of like, don't tell me I'm wrong because I'm going to use this word so that I get a shield of protection around me. So I'm going to call Pam Anderson sexist. I'm going to call Tura Satana or Elvira or these women using their sexuality. I'm going to say they're bad for women.
1: You know what's interesting is that I don't disagree with you, but I also don't know that it's that simple because I think that rather than it being them using sexism as a weapon against pamela anderson versus mary warnov i think it's all sexism that's, it, true. It, it that's just, true it just it just shows that there are many different faces of it. You're completely right. I think that what it is, is it's easier for the moral majority, for lack of a better term, because they fear sex and because they fear sexual power to be like, well, that's the reason. But the truth is in all of these cases, whether it's Mary Warnov or Pamela Anderson or whoever, they don't like women having agency. Yeah. And and that in itself
0: is, is sexist. Yes, you're right. We weaponize women who dare to be sexual. And so I I was going into this, this realm of, of, of really thinking about the women who we admire in the cult movie universe. And that sort of like at that layer of you're bad for women kind of thing. Sure.
1: But I think that's a great segue into, uh, the conversation we had with our next guest, because at one point we actually talk about this. We, We want sex kittens air quotes, but then we want to punish the women who play those parts. It's like, These sexual roles are curated for the male gaze, but then when it doesn't work or it doesn't succeed or whatever, it's the woman's fault. Like, how does that compute? And I'm glad that we got to dig into that with our next guest. Of course, not everything we talk about with her is is that serious, but it is a thread of this episode. You can't not look at this movie without digging into some of the cultural shit that has been laid at Pamela Anderson's feet That has been laid at women's feet I think it's really impactful and interesting and sad
0: Well, let's talk to her right now uh, Here's our next guest On the Midnight Mass podcast It's Ally Chappell
2: I treat a man like he treats me The difference between a the and a hoe Ain't nothing but a friend. Feet so hold your tongue tightly. Wish you could be like me. you are popping all the mess only the stress, send the spike me. And you could get with that or you could get with this, but I don't give a shit, cause really it's none of your business.
1: And welcome back, listeners. Of course, you can't have a cult film without the cult that makes it up. And luckily, we are joined not only by a barbed wire super fan, but by someone who I cannot wait to talk to. I first got to know her as one of the co-hosts of the celebrated Scream Addicts Hammer Pub podcast, which weekly celebrates a film from the catalog of the legendary Hammer films, usually with cocktails. More than just a commentator on films, she's also the creator of them. As a writer and director, she's the force behind Malediction, Verified, and the miniseries, Psycho Biddies. What's more, she starred in such titles as Scream of the Blind Dead, Space Vampire, The Final Ride, and Necropolis Legion. She's an actor, director, producer, writer, podcast host, and much, much, much more. Please welcome Allie Chapel. Hi, Allie.
3: Oh my God, that was the best intro. Feel so accomplished in my life.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, you certainly are. And one thing that I think Peaches and I just need to mention off the bat, in uh, celebration of you coming here, you also did barbed wire cosplay
0: on your TikTok. Very well, I might add.
3: Oh my god! I also found out on TikTok that there's a whole like '90s Pamela Anderson makeup filter, and I'm like, so I'm just going to use that one forever going forward because why would I do my own makeup when I could just have her face on my face? (laughs)
0: I need that filter, too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, Allie, why don't we just start back at the beginning? When did you first discover your love of barbed wire?
3: Ooh, it must have been in, like a high school sleepover, like going to the video store and being like, what are we watching tonight? Obviously like Pamela Anderson and her big blonde hair holding the gun on the front cover. I'm like this, this is what we're watching. I don't care what (laughs) it's even about. There's no way it's going to be bad. It's so weird and wonderful. And I've like loved it ever since. And I'm so surprised that like No one has picked it up for, like, a Blu-ray 4K restoration. Like, this seems like something that, like, Shout would do and release a poster with it. Like, guys, this is a moneymaker. Get on this.
0: (laughs) Well, maybe soon. One of the nice things about being a celebrator of cult cinema is sometimes we... Uh, As the the super fans who create events and now podcasts for many years, I just did the events. I'm proud to say that there've been a few cases where distributors have literally called me and asked me for attendance figures because they're trying to decide whether or not there's a cult for this film. And one of those was a movie called the apple that I helped get put out uh, at the time on DVD. They don't know. So it takes us fans to tell them. So Allie, Uh, I think you being on our show today, this might be just the beginning of the momentum needed, you know, to get
3: Barbed Wire released. This past Halloween or the Halloween before, Kendall Jenner dressed up as Barbed Wire. And I feel like that should have been the ultimate kickoff. Like if a Jenner is calling this movie out, why hasn't anyone picked it up? Actually,
0: that's probably more realistically the momentum they're going to look at. Um, But here's the deal. (laughs) Michael, Ali fuck Kendall Jenner when the big re-release the 4k happens it's because of us I mean that we're gonna yeah we're gonna rewrite the the narrative here okay so uh next question you you brought up the Pamela Anderson makeup filter and I of course am obsessed with her makeup and in in this movie so good the more we've been talking about the film, the more I've been thinking about her and just how fantastic she is and how she's part of this sort of legacy of Hollywood blondes, uh, women who who have come and redefined themselves, very similar to drag. And, and of course, we know Marilyn Monroe did this. Uh, we know Jane Mansfield did this. And we even can say someone like Angeline was a part of this sort of um, you know, movement. But I feel like Pam Anderson. Uh, and and Anna Nicole, of course. We, we should tip our hats to Anna Nicole. But I think, like, Pam Anderson, as is evidenced in the new announcement she's going to be appearing on Broadway in Chicago, Pam Anderson, in many ways, is standing the test of time, right? Like, there's a Hulu movie about her real life. She's going to be on Broadway. And so what do you think it is about Pam Anderson that makes her so special? And why do we love her decade after decade?
3: Right, from when she got her start, like in the early or late 1980s when she was just discovered on the Jumbotron at a Canadian football league game and Labatt was <laughs> like, hi, you're our new spokeswoman. You know when people in the industry talk about like the person has it? I yeah. feel like Pamela Anderson invented it. Like she redefined it for everyone because you just want to follow her. You want to be around her. You want to know like, and not just even all the like, not so great stuff that has happened to her. You just want to see where her life progresses. Cause she went from doing like a bunch of playboy to then being on home improvement as her first debut on TV. And then from that, she was like, guys, I'm better than home improvement. I'm doing Baywatch now. She kept at it for so long, even when things were flops, which like, let's be real. A lot of her stuff were flops, but she just kept at it for so long. And I think she truly just stood the test of time and also like preach she's Canadian so that has a big part of it, I will say.
0: <laughs> ah, so you're, you're Canadian. Yeah. Well, oh, where in Canada are you? I'm Toronto. Oh, I love Toronto.
1: So you talk about how Pamela Anderson has it. But one thing that we also know is that she's taken a lot of shit over the years too. And a theme of this episode that we talked about with our other guests as well as we've been discussing, is sort of this cultural reclamation of Pamela Anderson. Like, we have to reclaim her because she was treated so poorly for so long and continues to be. The Hulu series, which Peachy has mentioned, was of course made without her blessing, is exploiting an exploitative situation still after all of these years. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about Barbed Wire that I wanted to talk to you about is... In addition to Pamela Anderson and all of her cultural identity that goes with it, Barb Wire is an action hero who also trades in sex appeal. And when you look at that kind of character, Vampirella is another one who I know that you have a great fondness for. There is this thing where it's it's a female action character, but in some ways curated for the male gaze. Is that character and subsequently the actor punished for that? Do you think culturally and what do you say about a woman taking it back?
3: Well, I feel like just because, yes, she did get her start, you know, being in Playboy and being a nude model. And there was a point where she after she did one role, she was supposed to sign on to do another role. And she decided to end the contract because she's like, I don't feel comfortable with this whole sexual situation involving this film. And they had a whole lawsuit. And in the end, the production company lost the lawsuit because they're like, you can't make someone get naked on camera right but I feel like yeah this film has a lot of male gaze to it but she owns it so hard like she's like no I know I'm a badass and I know I'm hot and I'm gonna do both at the same time like I'm gonna wear this tiny little corset I'm gonna be in heels the whole time doing like she does majority of her own stunts which I think is amazing considering how you know high those heels are and she reclaims it and yeah I'm all about if women want to show off their body they should show off their body and I feel like she got a Bum rap for it, especially after the shitty situation where the sex tape got stolen and sold all over the internet. And then she has talked about it many times where it's such sitting in a room of just crunchy old men telling her that she has no claim to her own body. And I feel like barbed wire and the things she did subsequent afterwards helped her reclaim her own body back to herself.
0: I definitely think that this movie is created for the male gaze. And how should I put this? There are movies that are created for the male gaze where the models or actors or performers aren't really inside the cultivation of that. They're literally being told what to do, how to do it. They're kind of puppets. They don't have a say. That's not what this is. It's clear that Pam Anderson is like, oh, I know how to make money. And I know how to be in control of my image. I mean, she clearly was in on the costuming. You don't look that great and not be, you know, part of the the whole team. She's clearly in charge of her hair, her makeup. Like, you just know it. It's so specific. It's so cultivated. It's It's such her creation that I think in some ways there's a backlash against that almost. Like, it's almost like men don't want to know that the women are in control. They would prefer a movie where it looks more like exploitation, where this movie, it feels like she's in on the joke, so to speak. Does that make sense?
3: No, I, I completely agree. And this movie is uh, very comic booky. Like it had a whole mm-hmm. line of comic books going from like 95 to 96. And then in 2015, they tried to like reissue it again, but it didn't really work out. And it has that comic book feel where like, you know, big bust, tiny waist, like nice long legs. She looks like a comic book character and she's talked many times about how she owned that. And I did read that the whole opening dance sequence of Barbed Wire was her idea because she had like a nightmare about how she was doing like a nasty dance while being sprayed by champagne. And she was like, that's how we should open the movie. And the director was like, yeah, that sounds like a fucking great idea. (laughs) Do it. And so she gets credited for that whole opening scene. And the fact that that scene ends with her just like throwing her heel into a dude's face and then walking off stage doing that like drop walk because she only has like one six inch heel on.
0: So good. It's amazing. I'm glad you brought that scene up.
1: It's interesting because Peaches, as you were talking, I felt myself starting to get mad because in these movies that are curated for the male gaze and as as we all agree, Pamela Anderson had agency in ways that you know, maybe other performers haven't in, in similar kind of films. But the, the thing is, is we know the stigma of female-driven superhero movies across the years. And so the thing that's really extra fucked about all of this is this movie is made with the male gaze, starring a female action star. But then when it fails, who do we blame? Mm-hmm. Women. That's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah. It's tradition.
3: (laughs) It really is. I mean, when Patty Jenkins got signed on to do Wonder Woman, she got so much backlash because, like, who is this? How is she going to make a superhero movie? And they're like, are you you serious? She won an Oscar. Right. And it's just crazy that it was immediately dismissed because they're like, women don't know how to make superhero movies. Women aren't nerds. Women don't read comic books. And And
0: she nailed it. Right.
3: She nailed She nailed
0: it. We won't talk about the sequel, but she nailed that first That's the one. First one. Right. <laughs> That's all that matters.
1: We're here with you, Allie, because you do read comic books and you do make this kind of stuff, and you love this stuff. You have been on the cover of comic books. Like, when are we going to dispel this cultural notion that women do not like genre material?
3: I don't know. Like, I usually. Uh, work at like the fan expos and the comic cons and majority like I would say it's like a close to a 60-40 split towards women being the people who are there the most and they're the ones who are like truly embracing the cosplays you see some like very modest cosplays and you see some like really sexually driven cosplays and it's like this is your audience pitch more to women like gear your stuff towards them because they're buying the products and they're you know, making the YouTube videos. There are like so many gamers are now women on Twitch, like owning it. And I think that's just so great.
0: What would be great is to see the female driven, kick-ass, sexy action movie that's not made for boys. Right. And I'm not talking about making it for lesbians. Just make it for all women, you know, make it feel good. I guess Wonder Woman in many ways, that first Wonder Woman is that, you know? And it's so satisfying because it was so long overdue that a woman would be able to work with another woman. You know, clearly that's a movie where the director and the titular lead. (laughs) I mean, they had to work together as two women to create the magic that is that movie. And the fact that they had a bazillion dollars to do it is like, we haven't seen that. Yeah, and it also just never really existed, right? Like that that was such a, a great watershed moment. But when I said that it was tradition, I was being a little snarky, but I guess what I wanted to go back to and say is, this film, and especially the scene Ali brings up, right at the beginning, it tells you what it is. And I think that scene, that sequence that she participated in, is so clear. And it tells us what we need to know about Pamela. She's not afraid to be sexy. She is not afraid to get wet and do, you know, raunchy, very cool things to look sexy and amazing. But she throws that shoe in the guy's face who's literally catcalling her. That is it. I mean, it's, it doesn't get more literal than that. It says, I'm in charge. I'm allowed to be sexy. And you're not allowed to behave that way. And I'm going to put you in your place, literally. I'm going to throw my high heel shoe in your face. And it made me think about uh, a movie like Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, which came out you know, decades earlier. And men hated that movie. <laughs> like, when it came out, men hated it. They did not want to see a woman, especially three women with big, beautiful tits and little tiny waists and big, beautiful hips and asses because they were completely aroused by those women. And yet those women just fucking kicked the shit out of men, were beating men up. The women were in control of the movie. And Russ Meyer, to his credit, was an exploitation filmmaker, but Russ yeah. Meyer truly loved women. And it's an in evidence in that film especially But the public, men, they hated it. And in many ways, I think Barb Wire is a part of that legacy of like, no, no, no. She can be sexy, but she can't do that. She can't throw a shoe in someone's face.
3: Oh, I completely agree. Because so much of this movie is her just kicking the crap out of dudes. But being like in high heels, being in a corset, wearing like a thong over top of her fishnets. She is just a sex bomb throughout this entire thing. And she is just destroying men while well, it's happening. And I feel like that's why it probably didn't do so well in the box office. I feel like men weren't keen on seeing someone that sexually empowered.
1: Yeah. What I do think is true is she certainly walks with power through every scene that she's in. Let's let's shift gears. We've been talking relatively seriously, but let's let's dig into the fun stuff. That opening sequence is amazing. But do you, Allie, have a favorite scene or scenes in this movie that you're like, this is it. This is why I love this film.
3: Yeah, actually, it's a lot in the beginning where you get introduced to her character right away, where she's owning her sexuality. She doesn't care that she's naked. She's wet. She's in, like, the backstage of that weird strip club. And they're like, how is it out there? And she's, like, wet. (laughs) (laughs) She's funny. She's witty. And then, like, immediately... She finds the girl. She smuggles her out. They're like running through back alleys to get out of there. And then she goes like, finally reunites the daughter to her parents. And her parents are like, oh, we can only pay you half. Sorry, lady. And she's like, cool. I'll take half your daughter then. <laughs> yeah. And that whole thing just introduces you to this character that I feel like we don't get to see a lot, especially in the 90s. Yeah. And then she ends up, She takes his car. She's like, well, if you're not going to pay me half the money, you're going to give me the money and I'm going to take your car and y'all can leave and just stay here.
0: It's a proper negotiation. Did this movie and movies like Faster Pussycat Kill Kill open doors for? Because I was thinking about uh, the, I forget what it's called, but the newer Mad Max movie with uh, Charlize Theron. And I was thinking about how she is another woman who we all know is gorgeous. I mean, one of the most beautiful women. And and there she is in that movie looking gorgeous, but you know, shit kicking. And I'm starting to wonder like, do you believe that if barbed wire came out today, would it be received differently? I mean, God forbid, but let's say Kim Kardashian made the same kind of movie, or you know what I mean, like some some modern day <laughs> sex pot that everyone, you know, if if that movie came out today, would it be received differently than it was originally?
3: I think it would be received better. Yeah, me because too. I feel like audiences now are just so much more accepting of that. Like, did you see oh, what was that movie called with with also Shirley Theron, Um, Atomic Blonde. Oh yeah, yes. Where it like such a kick-ass movie and she's bisexual and she's killing everybody and she's kissing ladies. And it's a whole thing. And it's like, I feel like audiences are ready for stuff like that. Like we're ready to push. We're ready to see women owning their sexuality while at the same time, not taking garbage from truly anyone, mostly men, sorry. And this was a product of its time. And that was, I think, its main fault. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It cost like $9 million to make it. It only made like $4 million in the box office, which is like, oof. Well, and
1: I think it's a shame. <laughs> and we talked about this uh, with BJ, who is our other guest as well. The idea that even though this movie is, is expensive by any of our indie filmmaking standards. Uh, when you look at the other male-driven superhero movies that were made at the same time as Barbwire, they barely gave it anything. This is a $9 million movie versus Shaquille O'Neal's $16 million for Steel. I wonder if because of everything that was happening with Pamela Anderson at the time, this movie was set up to fail in some way.
3: I do think that was a lot of it. It sucks because that was something that was truly beyond her control and she continuously gets punished for it. Yeah. It wasn't like she gave it to her publicist and they leaked it and they're like, so scandalous. It was like she was violated so egregiously and... It did affect her career because of it and it affected her home life because of it, not just with Tommy Lee, but like I'm pretty sure it was around the same time when she like miscarried. It was not a good time for her. And this film should have been something that was a really proud moment for her. Right. I know she was proud of it, but it just sucks that it was also coincided with something so bad at the same time.
0: I'd forgotten that she was on Home Improvement. I certainly can't forget that she was on Baywatch, you know, and she was. She was on Home Improvement, which... Let's not forget that was like at one time the number one sitcom in this country. I mean, that, that was a big deal. And she was obviously a very, very bit part. You know, she was like, you know, the Vanna White, a show within a show. I totally forgotten about that. And then she, Smartly, you know, went to Baywatch where she had more of a role. She's kind, ca- literally the poster woman for that TV show. Mm-hmm. You, you know, teenage boys had that poster of her with the lifeguard, you know, preserver and the, 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 the life preserver and suits. the red bathing and... suit. Oh, iconic, 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 right? She's created these iconic images. But I was sitting here thinking about Marilyn Monroe, Jane Mansfield, and there was another one. Anna
3: Nicole Smith. Oh, Anna
0: Nicole. Yeah. They all passed away. Well, before they should have. Mm -hmm. They all died young, right? Like, that is a tragic coincidence. Three of these mega atomic blonde women who took pop culture by storm, reinventing themselves as these sexpots, who died in these tragic, tragic ways way too young. And that's not Pamela's story, right? Like, now she has stood the test of time, truly, literally. I mean, she's been around for decades, she's outlived all of those colleagues, you know, um, generationally. And she's going to be starring in Chicago on Broadway, right? I didn't know that. Michael sent me the notice the other day. I'm so happy for her that despite all the shit the world has kind of delivered her, she keeps going. We have a mutual friend, like someone who's a neighbor of hers. And I've heard that she's an excellent mother, you know? So that's also lovely to know, you know, that she's able to do all of this stuff and be a good mom. And, you know, anyway, I just kind of wanted to like bring it up because it sucks right now that she's hurt by this new Hulu show, which I haven't seen yet, but apparently, you know, it's basically for her, it's like reliving your trauma. Yeah. It's
3: re-traumatizing her all over again. And also, so proud of her that she's getting a Netflix documentary about her life being like, okay, I'm going to fucking set the record straight since everyone else is telling me what my life is. Let me tell you what my life is. And I'm so proud and also like a little bit sad because I'm like, you were basically forced into doing this by the media being like, this is who Pamela Anderson is. This is what she did. Mm -hmm. This is what happened to her. And it's like, I don't want to have to tell my story, but I kind of have to at this point now that they've made a TV show of my life.
1: You know what I think is great because Peach has brought up Anna Nicole and Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield and how the world took, took, took from them. And it eventually, you know, was their undoing in many ways. It's nice to see Pamela get the opportunity to turn around and take back, even though she has been forced many times and unfairly into these circumstances I think that for those of us who love her, when she gets these triumphant moments, it feels all the better. And hell yeah, she's going to be Roxy Hart. Let's watch her kill a guy or two. Come on.
3: I'm truly excited. I truly did not know she could sing, so I'm very excited to like, like I will go to New York and buy a ticket because I'm just like, oh, this is going to be so good.
0: I mean, I might just be
1: right there with you.
3: Like arrange a range of day to go.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So many of us are rooting for her. I think we all know there's a certain amount of punishment you go through when you're a woman in pop culture who comes from a background where Playboy is how you got your start or whatever. And and what I love about Pamela Anderson is she hasn't really let any of this stop her, clearly. You know, we may we, we may not hear from her for a while, but, like, this Netflix movie, uh, good for her. I really yeah. can't wait. I mean, that's the one I'll tune in to see immediately, that's you awesome. know. I hope she gets to produce stuff. You know, that was one of the delicious things about um, is controversial as Ryan Murphy is, probably because he creates so much content. Oh, you know, so everyone nice. has an opinion, right? so much content, but one of the things I saw recently that I quite loved was, I forget what the full title of it is like, but I think it's American Crime Story Impeachment. And yes. it's, you know, the yeah, the Linda Tripp, Monica Lewinsky thing. And because Monica Lewinsky was one of the producers, here's another woman that, that took the world by storm by no choice of her own, right? Much like Pamela Anderson, you know, Pamela Anderson was most famous for a video that she had not consented to being released. Monica was most famous for being outed in a way that she did not consent to. And and, they, and, and these things made these women hugely famous. I think one of the reasons the show with uh, about Monica is so satisfying is because she was a producer. And so if producers are out there, like, let's get Pam Anderson producing content. You know, let's bring her in because I'm sure she has many stories to tell.
3: I will say in my, like research about Pamela where I learned so much about her younger years and like she came from like a lot of trauma like being sexually abused as a child and being gang raped as a teenager Uh. and then having an abusive boyfriend before she got Playboy and then everything that has happened since. But she throughout all of this trauma persevered and didn't lose who she was. Like she started working aggressively for PETA and doing the whole, you know, no fur, no meat movement. And she had, you know, the iconic leaf bikini and a photo of her where she got the drawing on her body of like all the different meat cuts all over her naked body, which is just phenomenal. And then after she did barbed wire and a couple of the other weeks, she signed on to do VIP. Oh, yeah. She helped with whoever the creative directors were. She was producing it. She helped with casting. Like, she was very much in control of that show. And I still feel like it wasn't as well received. And I wish I could find it now because I so desperately want to marathon it.
1: VIP available now on the Tubi streaming platform. Really?
3: (gasps) I hope it's in Canada. If it's not in Canada, I'm going to lose my mind.
1: (laughs) I remember that show because when I was in college, we brought Bruce Campbell to do a talk. And Bruce Campbell had just directed an episode of the show. And he was talking about how great it was to work with Pamela Anderson. And um, I guess he worked on the show a couple of times where he directed a number of episodes. And for some reason, I was thinking about that the other day. Well, before we had decided to do this episode, and I was like, whatever happened to VIP? And I found it on Tubi. So for those of you who want to see Gun Toting, Super Spy, Pamela Anderson, Carry On, that's a good place to go.
3: If you're an American, you can watch it. If you're a Canadian, we're left out, as always, even though, just so we're clear, barbed wire, they're trying to smuggle someone over the Canadian border, and she demands to be paid in Canadian money. <laughs> yeah, let's
1: talk about that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> let's dig into that briefly, because this movie was made in the late 90s, but was set in the distant future of 2017, which, of course... That's we my have, favorite part. <laughs> yeah. We have now seen 2017 come and go. There is a lot to unpack here about a fascist America, but as a Canadian... Watching barbed wire, it has to be satisfying for you to show, to see our country, the US, represented as this just truly awful place. And everybody just wants to come to Canada. That's
3: like reality. I, <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: Everyone wants to come to Canada. We have all the free health care. Yeah. We're not great up here either, but we're trying. Yeah. But it's just,
0: <laughs> but you're better. Great. <laughs>
3: and I just feel like no movies, unless they're specific to Canada, never really talk about canada like canada's kind of the butt of everybody's jokes and i don't know i never read the barbed wire comics so i don't know if this is from the comic books or anything but like the fact that she's like no you're paying me in canadian money i'm like but our money sucks there you're making less money getting paid in canadian <laughs> but not in the future As in the 2017 future
0: <laughs> i think in this this reality Canada wins and Canadian money is worth way more than the American dollar. I also thought it was pretty prophetic. Of course I watched the whole thing through a futuristic drag queen lens um, because, you know, she is a drag icon. I mean, beyond, right? Oh my God, totally. totally a drag icon. Drag queens would consider her one of us, much like we do, you know, Elvira or Dolly Parton or Cher, you know, Pam Anderson is one of us. She's a queen. She's a drag queen. We love our AFAB queens, right? So I was watching it. I was like, this is kind of hilarious that this whole fucking drama is centered around contact lenses. Like, you know, like special. I was like, who could (laughs) have predicted? Because, you know, in the drag world back then, no one was wearing these, you know, fancy colored contacts, you know. But now, I mean, Bianca Del Rio, she wouldn't be caught dead without, you know, Trixie Mattel. They all wear these, these expensive, yeah. you know, well, no, they're not expensive. They're probably cheap. They're probably destroying their eyeballs. Um, But, yeah, the contact lens storyline was amazing. And then, of course, Michael and I were very disturbed about the whole AIDS storyline, you know, and in that Thing. Yeah.
1: yeah do you feel that that gets kind of introduced like and then sort of brushed aside even though it's supposed to be a major plot point kind of
3: it felt really shoehorned in like hey guys this is the hot topic just talk about it for a couple of scenes and then let it go yeah and i think that <laughs> i'm still sort of
1: even unclear like she has feline A. some eggs. they ha- <laughs> mm-hmm. okay because we, we we need more angry viewer letters um no uh <laughs> We uh, she has there, there's some sort of hyper version of AIDS in the 2017 future of barbed wire. And since she's created a cure and it's in her bloodstream and that's why they don't want her to go to Canada. Is that did I get that right?
3: Am I right? I literally just rewatched it and I'm like,
0: I OK, I just rewatched it. This is so embarrassing. I rewatched it. I paid attention. And then when it was over, I went to Wikipedia and I read the plot and I still can't answer that fucking question. I have comic book friends. Right. And sometimes I feel like they love the minutia of shit in this way. Like I love a movie that's kind of beaten me over the head with what's going on. And, you know, like where something like barbed wire, these comic book movies, it's like, they're just throwing so much at you.
3: It kind of does the same thing that I feel. And I'm sorry if I anger people with this statement but that I feel the Matrix films do, where I'm like, you're just yelling a bunch of shit at me and I kind of get what's happening. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like it's (laughs) overcomplicated, a very simple story. Let's
0: face it. The Wachowski siblings, in general, do love (laughs) that kind of thing. And I love their stuff. Matrix, maybe not so much, but like Sense8, I really, really love. But I'm sure there are people who understand Sense8 way better than I do. But I love it, you know? so Well,
1: also, Bound. Bound is the movie with characters who are very much in Barb's, like, you know, closet of clothes, you know,
0: universe. Um, At least Bound has a plot that you can follow. The Matrix and Sense8 live in this sort of, like, barbed Wire sci-fi world where nothing is the same, right? So anything can happen. And my brain kind of starts to turn off, like... Like when, when, like when Ali said the matrix just throws a bunch of shit at you that you don't understand, like, that's me. I totally get it. But there is a particular viewer who loves that shit. They're waiting for more shit. You know, yeah. they want they want it to be as complicated as possible. So anyway, I, I think we're making our point that there is, there is kind of an audience for that kind of thing. Like I bet there's some dork out there who could sit here and and tell us all the shit we did not pick up on watching barbed wire.
3: I think one of the best comparisons I've heard for this movie is the amount of people who compare it to Casablanca because it's basically the same storyline. And I'm just like, interesting choice.
0: That might have been intentional.
1: It is intentional, yeah. which I love just of all of the ways to adapt Casablanca.
3: <laughs> yeah. Every movie theater out there, this is your double bill.
1: That's the double bill I want to do. Like, I want to do yeah. Casablanca and barbed wire. You know, there's sort of like the fa-fa-fa art house crowd that comes earlier in the evening. And then the real ones stay through for barbed wire.
2: Exactly. We
0: should do a whole episode on, on those kind of double features because... That, it, that actually is a really great way to see both movies, right? Yeah. The fact that they really based it on Casablanca, it would be really fun to watch it back to back.
1: Now, Allie, a question that I like to ask all of our guests who love movies like these, uh, you know, cult films or movies that we see and we carry with us through our lives. How has your relationship with barbed wire changed over the years, if at all?
3: I feel like when I first saw it as like, truly like an angsty teen with my pimply face and my awkward hair and style and not really knowing who I was and seeing probably one of the first times a very strong prominent woman on the screen I was just like yeah like this movie's kind of dumb and I don't fully get it but like she's so cool and then growing up with it and seeing it periodically throughout the last 20 years and being like she's more than just pretty cool she owns herself she owns her sexuality she's such a badass and she's doing all of this in like the world's tightest corset because i also read that they tied it so tight that her waist was 17 inches wow doing all those stunts she can barely breathe and just seeing that she wasn't just some blonde playboy model who had a sex tape leaked that she was actually a really good actor and i feel like she doesn't get praised for that because she's really good in this like this role was truly written for her. And I don't know if I could even think of someone today who could play something like this.
1: It's funny that you say that because earlier when Peaches made the comment, you know, if, if this movie was made today and they got someone like Kim Kardashian, I was thinking to myself, if they made Barb wire today, who would play barbed wire? And my thought was, what well, should just still be Pam Anderson?
0: Yeah,
3: it should be. She's still great. Yeah. She did have her implants removed, but that's okay because she's still pretty busty. Yeah, I could see her bringing this role back.
1: I sure hope so. Now, before we head out, uh, you know, you always seem to be up to something. What are you working on these days?
3: Uh, I'm still in post-production on my feature film, *Malediction*. I recently got, like, really into TikTok. Um, <laughs> right? And uh, I've been auditioning like crazy. I got some short films coming up. I want to direct more stuff, so hopefully I can pop some more things out there and just keep, keep the hustle alive.
0: Excellent. Yeah, that is great. Well, I I have to say, Allie, it has been such a pleasure. You're so fun. And it's been so great to talk with you. And um, I'm glad we finally got to meet.
3: Also the hammer pub guys wanted to shout out and be like, why did you take Allie before us? We've known you way longer.
0: (laughs) That is true.
1: Sorry. Sorry. Jinx and Paul, your time will come.
3: And also, my friend Stephen wanted a shout out because Peaches, your film All About Evil, he championed to play at the Toronto After Dark Film Festival. Ah, oh my God, and I loved. When I told him that I was doing this podcast, he was like, "Can you please just like quickly slide into Peaches that like I got that film played here?"
0: <laughs> ah, well, thank you, Stephen, so much. That was a very memorable screening. And as Michael knows all too well, I have been in an All About Evil K hole pulling together all of these hidden and forgotten elements for the Severin Blu-ray, which they're putting together right now. I've been really living in that world all over again. And it's been lovely and so many great memories attached to that. And one of them is, that was my first time in Toronto. And uh, Faye Slift uh, did did a whole pre-show um, at the Bloor um, cinema, yes. which is a fabulous movie theater in Toronto, not and not I remember there. it's not there anymore.
3: No.
0: Oh, see, oh, no. that's that's
3: that's why all about evil. It's now like this Ted Rogers place, and they only show documentaries, and it's fuck that. It's, it's not the same. That. Toronto's not the same anymore.
0: That's the whole point of all about evil. You know, she's she's trying to save her single screen movie house, and that's why playing at a movie theater like the Bloor was always memorable for me because it was like, well, this is the movie. Well. Allie, I think
1: all that you did in there, I mean, there was a lot that you said there, but what I think you reiterated is that you need to keep the indie scene of Toronto alive. So keep on making movies. We are excited to see what more you have coming. And thank you so much for joining us today. And that was our conversation with the fantastic Allie Chapel. I Love Allie's passion for this movie. Uh, as we pointed out in the episode, Allie, in preparation for the episode, donned barbed wire cosplay and, and posted it on TikTok. I love that level of celebration because honestly, that's in the spirit of Midnight Mass. That's that's our people. And uh, as, as I also pointed out, Allie was a huge inspiration for us doing this episode. So that's I just right. loved listening to her um, love of this movie in celebration of this movie and love of Pamela Anderson, much like BJ, they both really admire what Pamela means and stands for.
0: Yes, and I think that it, it, it's time we look at someone like Pam Anderson in the history of women and start to go, you know what? You can admire Michelle Obama, but it's also okay to admire Pam Anderson, you right. know? And, and there are girls who grew up becoming stronger because they were fans of Pam Anderson. And I, I'm not, I, of course, comparing Pam Anderson and Michelle Obama, I'm trying to draw a a, a distinction between uh, their differences, obviously. But in many ways, the fact is we just talked to two women who were greatly inspired and, and have said, that that this woman has contributed to my strength, you know, as a woman. And I I just, I love that. And it's my favorite part of of revisiting Barbed Wire. And like we said at the beginning of this episode, the episode ended up becoming a more of an idol worship episode to Pam Anderson through this sort of celebration of Barbed Wire. And I could not be happier that that's what this episode ended up taking the shape of.
1: This movie was one of those movies that was on our list, but... Because it's not always considered one of those immediate go-tos in the Midnight Movie Pantheon, it was sort of a learning curve for us because we both revisited the movie. And in revisiting the movie, we're like, oh, yes, absolutely. There's call to appeal to this. But then in talking to our guests and their passion and their excitement it got me lit up on this film in ways that I don't think I ever knew that I could be. So I
0: I love that. Yeah, me too. And before we sign off, uh, I wanted to kind of just tidy up some midnight mass business because it occurred to me, Michael, that, many of our listeners may not know that if you go to peacheschrist.com and you click on the gift shop, there's two gift shops there and you click on the Peaches gift shop, you know, explore. But we have Midnight Mass merchandise there. So if, you, if you're if you a fan of the podcast and, and you want to support the podcast, obviously join our Patreon, uh, which I'll talk about in a second. But yeah, you could also get a Midnight Mass t-shirt. You can get a Midnight Mass poster. And, and I think there's some other things that you can get. Maybe a Midnight Mass coffee mug go go check it out because i i think we never actually mentioned that on the podcast that we have we have midnight mass merch
1: i think that you all would do well with having peaches and i on your wall watching you all the
0: time yeah i mean the only problem with that is just uh is there enough time in the day for the amount of masturbation that comes along with putting a poster of me on your wall. It's
1: true, there's only 24 hours
0: in the day. <laughs> Maybe put it somewhere where you look at it, you know, and you have, uh, anyway, whatever. Uh, sorry, uh, I didn't mean to digress like that. No, nope. bringing it back to barbed wire, put it above your bubble bath. Put it next to your barbed wire movie poster. And that's your that's your, um, jerk off room. Yeah, there you go.
1: Yes, and I invite you all to compare Peach's makeup and Pam's makeup. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, I'm gonna post photos of my friend Miss Chocolate, who we we reference in this episode a lot, uh, who was the door whore at the shack for many many years. Because I want everyone to see the Pam Anderson of it all in terms of Miss Chocolate's drag. So I'm gonna post those on the Patreon. And Patreon wise, I know when this episode airs, it'll it'll be uh, the time will be different. But in real time, as we're recording this, we actually just had our first. Patreon, Zoom, social mixer with our Pope level Patreon subscribers so people at the highest level of um, Patreonage um, I believe they, they they all sponsor us for $20 a month or more which is so generous and so helpful yeah. and so we met with them last night on Zoom and had like a little mixer and I loved it it was so lovely
1: yeah it was so magical it was really great to sit and talk to everyone um, what we did is we just kind of chatted with everyone talked to them about Uh, their favorite cult movies, both that we've covered on the show and that we haven't yet. Uh, And and just, you know, getting to know the listeners, but also a nice reminder that the listeners are like us. They love these movies. They worship the altar of these movies and they look forward to the celebration as much as we do and that that meant the world.
0: Yeah, and getting to put like a face behind some of the people that we interact with on social media and on the Patreon was so cool. Especially, one of our guests was... In the future, he was coming to us from the following day, which is so great. He, he, he listens to our show all the way in Australia. So I, that was just so cool. And it just really like gave me just a sort of a warm, fuzzy feeling about what we're doing. And if you want to join the next one, Michael and I are going to shuffle around like what day of the week we do this, what time we do this, so that hopefully, you know, over time more and more of you can join. Because obviously scheduling something live, you know, it's live. You either make it or you don't. So yes. Um, yeah, and for all of you that listen to the show and that have been so supportive with us, you know, I just want to say, if you are someone who gets triggered when someone calls you "babe," well, <laughs> then you just might be one of the children of the popcorn now.) <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.